Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod. With the death of Constable Shailen Yang, bylaw officers speak out demanding more training and resources as their members confront more violent individuals in local parks. Plus, NDP leader David Eady lays out his plan for his first 100 days in office. Former Premier Christy Carr joins us to discuss what EB will face as he leads the province. And Taylor Swift's new album dropped today. Meet the local Swifty who took the day off to express her devotion. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Uh, GoFundMe page for the family of Constable Yang, who was killed in line of duty this week, has raised close to $60,000 within the first day. The Burnaby RCMP officer, who was a, a Richmond resident, was killed on Tuesday at a homeless encampment. Now, the GoFundMe page does state that donations will be used towards arrangements uh, to help her family's finances. Now, Yang, who was 31, is survived by her spouse and family. Uh, She served in the Burnaby Detachment's mental health and homeless outreach team and was there, as I said, for three years uh, at this particular point. Now, it's a team that works closely with bylaw officers and employees within the city of uh, Burnaby. Now, today, an organization representing bylaw officers says communities need to provide more training and resources for city employees as they're increasingly forced to deal with people dealing with mental health and addiction challenges. Joining me now is Tina Mercier. Ms. Mercier represents the Licensed Inspectors and Bylaw Officers Association of British Columbia. Tina, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Uh, the situation uh, uh, that uh, transpired uh, earlier this week with Constable Shailen Yang, uh, a bylaw officer and a homeless individual, uh, has been in the news, and we continue to have that conversation in in regards to that incident. Um, can you speak a little a little bit to me about um, what bylaw officers uh, in uh, throughout this province are going through and are seeing uh, in regards to dealing with the our population that is homeless and dealing with mental health and addiction issues? Yeah, you bet. So first, I just want to say on behalf of the Licensed Inspector and Bylaw Officer Association of BC, we're very devastated by the loss of the RCMP member and um, Burnaby RCMP staff. We're, our sincere condolences to the family and friends and the entire RCMP family. So we truly thank all of our police partners who very routinely assist bylaw officers and other city staff um, when dealing with these types of calls for service. It's it's very disheartening, and we, we offer our support on behalf of our association. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I definitely say the, the role of bylaw officers across the province has shifted within the last few years. Um, the role is very critical. The profession can obviously involve a lot of risk, um, and many are being tasked, like you mentioned, with um, homeless encampments, rough sleepers, um, handling issues with some of the vulnerable population and, and social issues. Um, involving, you know, drugs and mental health and whatnot. So it requires a lot of specialized training and education. And um, I think the goal of our association especially is to really ensure that our bylaw officers across the province have the right education and and tools to do the job safely. So that's, you know, having trauma-informed training, mental health and addictions training, overdose prevention training. Um, And really that'll help do the job well and and safe, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, so, and but, but is that training yeah. provided to uh, the average uh, bylaw officer? Are they all required to take that training now? So, LIBOA, like basically, um, bylaw officers across the province are unregulated. So, each municipality has 
and regional district has the ability to provide the own, their own types of training. So obviously we have like a recommended um, type of training, but it's not standardized that everyone has to receive the same training. So we're really trying to get to that point of standardizing bylaw training across the province now more than ever um, and have that kind of in our skill set. So really being prepared and having, you know, the right policies and procedures and if there's any defensive tools required to protect officers from like unpredictable behaviors and things like that, now more than ever is, is the time to start thinking about that if, if local governments haven't already. Um, but it's it's a sensitive issue right now and obviously we want to ensure that you know, and we hope that municipalities take it seriously and provide their officers with what kind of training that they need to do the job safely. Have they been slow in doing so? Have municipalities been slow in, in providing that training in your in your experience? Well, I think it's really been different for each municipality. Like some are a lot more progressive and, you know, some municipalities have um, police services or RCMP staff that respond to the more difficult calls for service um, and others it's been kind of um, forwarded on to or deferred to bylaw officers so it's kind of done differently throughout the province but a lot of bylaw officers are tasked with you know entering homeless encampments and and those kind of situations that you know are exposing them to a lot of risk and, and hazard and unfortunately. Uh, in regards to uh, needing assistance from uh, uh, an RCMP or municipal police, municipal police force, uh, police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, how often in these situations uh, is does a bylaw officer uh, require or ask for assistance from an RCMP officers to 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 join them in regards to whatever the the job may require? Yeah, it's definitely case by case. So I think you know if there's someone that's known to either have a weapon or. Um, be in an aggressive state, then the the officer is trained to take those precautionary measures, you know, always enter um, with more than one officer, call the RCMP if there is known violence, things like that. So really getting to know um, the people in your community is definitely important, building those relationships and having that rapport so that when it is time to enforce a bylaw or to, you know, help um, get people connected to resources or services in the community, then at least they have the relationship built where they can, you know, try to do that with ever, hopefully with ever, without having to use force or anything like that or a defensive tool or anything. So the the goal is to get to compliance and sometimes that's not always the case and sometimes, you know, they are exposed to risk and injury and, and whatnot, but if it's predictable, then it's preventable. And I think that's the key message is we want to make sure that local governments are doing very thorough and methodical reviews of policies and procedures and, you know, risk and hazard assessments, working alone procedures even. Mm-hmm. And that in the long term will really help mitigate some of those risk of, of injuries um, for but law the, enforcement officers. In this case, you had one RCMP officer, to my understanding, and a parks employee um, that mm-hmm. had attended that event. Uh, you're talking about, uh, you know, not just bylaw officers, obviously having somebody there as well, another coworker perhaps with them, but even uh, I would assume RCMP or law enforcement needs to have that conversation, where it isn't just one officer going in alone with a, with a bylaw officer. It may require a second officer to be there for their mm-hmm, safety mm-hmm. as well. Absolutely. Uh, all it takes is one person. All it takes is one um one unpredictable event, all it takes is one weapon and, you know, 
in an encampment, there's, you know, several weapons of opportunity and things like that, um, that you just never know what could come of it. So definitely being in more than one partnership and having that support in the area that um, you can draw upon and call upon in an emergent situation, definitely looking at forms of communication and ensuring that everyone has radio access and, you know, any panic systems, things like that. Um, these are all things that local governments, I'm hoping now, are really, really focusing on so that they can, you know, have their staff as, as prepared as they can for these types of unfortunate situations. In regards to what's transpired, in regards to what we've talked about over the last, uh, well, three to four days now, uh, ever since uh, the incident occurred in Burnaby on Tuesday, why do you think it's taken this long for this conversation to occur? Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, from a work-safe lens too, um, you know, more and more violence in the workplace, more and more types of risk and injuries. And it's unfortunate that it would ever take a a tragedy like this to compel a change, but sometimes um, that's what's needed. And and not that that's the case here, but I think to make these big changes, it's really a lot of, it requires a lot of commitment around officer safety to all law enforcement officers. And the work they do is getting more difficult um, with the opioid crisis and things like that. And post-pandemic, there has been a lot of these types of challenges, but I think now more than ever, um, local governments need to push um, even at a more provincial level and, you know, use any grant funding and, you know, get any support that they can for their communities so that we can have safety as, as a focus. Have your members, bylaw officers, been injured uh, out in the field uh, when it comes to uh, asking people to leave, uh, let's say, a park or, or other um, uh, community uh, centers or places uh, just doing their job uh, and have been attacked by those with mental health and addiction issues? Yeah, I I don't have the exact stats or data, but um, anecdotally, yeah, it does happen. And I think, you know, that's why we want to ensure that we have, you know, very adequate and timely training with mental health and addictions and trauma-informed training. And I think these things will prepare the bylaw officers across the province more to respond to these issues. There's um, there's oh, there is situations where we have had to call you know the RCMP to assist us, um, especially around around weapons. And you know more people are carrying weapons, and unfortunately, you know it makes the job that much more risky. And uh, we can't we can't do it all. Absolutely not. And you know there is a lot of pressure on a lot of bylaw departments across the province to be more and be more visible and help more with some of these social issues that have kind of fallen on our on our plates. Um, so training is definitely key to being most prepared in the field. Yeah, uh, and, but as you say, they've had to deal with weapons. No amount of training is going to prepare you as somebody with a knife or, or, or a gun. I'm going to assume that's what you mean by weapons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as unfortunate as it is, um, given the recent incident, you can't always be prepared. You don't always know what you're walking into. And like I said, it only takes one person or one one weapon and that's it. So it is very risky and difficult. And I think really just getting everyone prepared to start having those reviews of policy and procedures around safety and um, ensuring that they do have the, the tools, equipment and training to be as safe as they can out there. It's, it's a unique time, I'd say. <laughs> what 
have your members been saying to you this week? I mean, obviously they were shocked like all of us in regards to the incident that 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 occurred, but there must be some anger and frustration that it that it's gotten to this point uh, that that uh, it's yeah. getting the attention that it it has probably deserved many many months and certainly years prior because the the violence level has escalated as you said. Mhm mhm. Yeah, there's definitely some I mean obviously great sadness, but there's also a lot of, you know, frustration that we're being faced with with these issues and not having, you know, a a magic bullet response here. There's no such thing and if there is it, we would have done it by now, I'm sure across the board, but you know, it's really working a lot with community partners and and really getting getting to the root of the problems which with mental health and addictions can be very difficult to get to and oftentimes people don't want treatment or supports and it makes makes it that much harder when they're not in a, a place to accept those kind of supports and you know even if the resources are available they may not always be willing to to go and get that help they need um, so it is a bit of a vicious cycle that way unfortunately but um, yeah, it's it's a challenge, and and I wish we had the solution, but um, it's it's really just getting a lot of support for these individuals so that they can get out of this the cycle that they're in. Tina, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate our, your the conversation with you, and I look forward to chatting with you in the future. Thank you so much. You bet. Thanks, Jess. Take care. The federal government's promised national freeze on the sale, purchase, and transfer of handguns takes effect today. Part of Ottawa's plan to limit access to firearms to tamp down on a spike uh, in crime. Now, under the regulations, people can still own and use their existing registered handguns and sell or transfer handguns to exempted individuals or businesses. And a request to transfer a handgun submitted before today's date will still be processed according to the government. Now, authorized businesses can continue to import and sell handguns to other eligible businesses like museums and the movie industry, uh, law enforcement, defense personnel, and other exempted uh, individuals. Joining me now to talk about this freeze on buying and selling of handguns is Daniel Furter, owner of Caliber Magazine. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on. So what are you hearing from gun owners today in regards to this new uh, national uh, freeze? Um, I think disappointment. Um, There's a certain ennui about the whole thing. I think people have kind of, um, we all knew it was coming, obviously, but Mm -hmm. uh, I guess now the reality is here and every, you know, that's it. The the trade, the selling and everything is basically done. Um, I think it's, it's pretty sobering and I think it's, probably only just starting to hit gun owners to be honest uh we're in, in as as this freeze continues a week from now a month from now a year from now what happens to shops who sell uh the industry you know the folks who actually uh you know use you know own guns for recreational purposes some on farms and that sort of thing what do you think happens um, well, handguns are very specifically only able to be used on gun ranges. Mm-hmm. So for all the people living in rural areas and whatnot that use guns daily, it's not going to be too much of an impact for them, this particular thing. But obviously, uh, where it's really going to hit hard is amongst uh, where we were seeing kind of the, the biggest growth amongst gun licensees is younger people that were taking part in the action shooting sports, okay. uh, which are sports like IPSD, International Practical Shooting Competition, and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> now that Obviously, a lot of these action shooting sports require handguns um, for them, basically. So this terminates all that. Because um, while there was an exemption,
recreation allowed for sports with handguns. The only sport that they're exempting, unfortunately, is uh, Olympic shooting. And even there, to be an Olympic-level shooter with the approval of the necessary high-performance committees um, in, in basically sport governance, uh, you have to be kind of good at it, right? And, and how do you get good if you can't get a gun without being on the Olympic team? Mm-hmm. Um, so all that will, will kind of end for businesses like my own and, and gun shops. Uh, this represents between 30 and 40 percent of the business, so it's going to be pretty crippling the industry. So for you, uh, does this mean uh, significantly reducing your business? Does that mean shutting it down? What, what kind of impact do you think? What do you, what do you think you're going to have to go through over the next few months? I don't know. I obviously hope I don't have to shut it down. We've been in business now for 10 years. Uh, the last three to four have been kind of harder because of all these regulations coming in eroding. Uh, what we had, I mean, for example, handguns are a great case of this magazine that we produce caters to Canadian gun owners who, like I said, can only use handguns on gun ranges. They're not allowed to be concealed carry and stuff. Part of the reason I started this magazine was because I couldn't read about what it was like to own a handgun from a Canadian perspective. All the American magazines are dominated by concealed carry and stuff we can't legally do. Um, but now that handguns are effectively locked in and no one can do anything with them, what is there to say about them? I can't review any. No one can buy one. Um, so it's I don't know what the future really holds. And I I do think that there will be a lot of businesses that do do end up just closing down and quite a few that will obviously shrink. Some will try and pivot to find find new revenue streams. But uh, running a business, most of these businesses are very small. Um, Some of them are maybe medium-sized. A lot of them have been family-owned for generations. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like in Vancouver, you got Reliable Gun that's going on, I think, about 70 years now of family ownership. it's been really hard to run a small business these last couple of years. This all of this gun regulation is just heaped on top of the already existing COVID issues. It's going to get really hard for these guys. I don't know what they do now. Uh, at the announcement today, Prime Minister Trudeau um, uh, was reading from a from a list of t- uh, statistics, and he said that the number of handguns in Canada has increased roughly seventy percent since twenty ten, and the number of firearms related homicides uh, has gone up some forty percent since twenty eleven. And handguns were the weapons most commonly used to carry out these crimes. He said that these regulations are designed to curb handgun-related homicides and reduce the number of domestic violence, suicide, and self-harm incidents. I'm going to, base based on what you've been saying, you don't think this will have any impact on, on some of those numbers that he's provided? Not of any kind of statistical significance, because the reality is that the ban, the transfer ban, is a ban on transfers between licensed individuals. And licensed gun owners are responsible for such an infinitesimally small amount of gun crime. I believe it's less than 2%. Um, so this ban only impacts the people that are responsible for the tiny, tiny minority of the existing crime. So I don't expect it. I mean, there was a shooting in Toronto two hours after the announcement. I don't, you know, criminals don't call the RCMP to get approval for their firearm transfer. It's not how it works in the criminal world. Hmm. Um, and to be honest, it kind of undercuts the entire foundation of the Canadian gun control system, which is that we control the people that can have firearms, and we have all of these systems in place to do so. But now with this government seems quite keen to add controls on the specific kinds of firearms, which kind of makes some of the other controls useless. Uh, is this per, uh, political performative theater for you in regards to this, this particular bit of regulation? And if you're saying that illegal guns are the ones that are the problems, the criminals who bring in these guns, it's not the law-abiding individuals. This is, to you, this is just political theater? Yeah, I think so. I, I think um, it was brought up, interestingly, on uh, David Hurley's podcast, obviously a political, mm-hmm. uh, very politically minded fellow. And he brought up um, an interesting assessment that 
you know, Canadians view the Liberal Party as being tough on guns and they view the Conservatives as being tough on crime. Um, and it's a bit, there's, there's a certain degree of logical fallacy there where, you know, guns aren't a problem unless they're being involved in crime. No one would look at a hunter and go, well, that's a problem because they have a gun. It's crime with guns that is the problem. Um, and I think that kind of anachronistic split is what the Liberals were trying to really take advantage of. We know that Justin Trudeau was elected frequently on a very efficient uh, vote machine that relies on big turnout in the in the urban areas of Toronto and Vancouver, where gun announcements typically do very well, and Quebec and Montreal. Um, and when you look at where these announcements took place, there's three press conferences this morning in Vancouver, Toronto, and Quebec, Montreal. So that you know they're trying to hit literally their voter bases geographically. They're standing there and talking to them. Uh, it's hard to, you know, they're not going to the crime-ridden areas. These announcements aren't happening in areas where shootings are occurring. Uh, so you can kind of infer all that. Uh, not to mention, pretty much everyone doesn't expect this to work. Yeah. Um, you well, have got Commissioner Lucky herself, somewhat ironically, going back a couple of years saying, I don't think a handgun ban is the way to go. Well, we will keep uh, an eye on uh, how things transpire in the weeks ahead. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you again for having me on. Premier-designate uh, David Eby says he will be introducing significant initiatives to tackle the issue of housing, health care, the environment, and public safety in his first uh, 100 days in office. He was speaking to the media and a crowd of supporters at the Chan Centre in his Vancouver Point Grey riding today. Eby also said he is firmly committed to not calling an, election, an early election call before the next fixed date of October 19th, 2024. That's uh, good to hear. So two years away. Now, British Columbia's Premier Desident David Eby says he will focus on making the province a better place to live after he is sworn in as Premier in November. I'm setting down a marker today on these priorities for our government. Housing, health care, the environment, public safety. At the end of those 100 days, you will have seen announcements, activity from government focused on delivering results for British Columbians that uh, set out the groundwork for how, in the next two years, we are going to deliver significant change for British Columbians. It is a short window for government. You all know that. Two years in government goes like this. But we have to move quickly, and we have to address these issues for British Columbians. They're counting on us to do that. Now, leadership races actually are the easy part. They probably didn't feel like that the last uh, well, 48 hours for Mr. Eby. But he now begins transitioning into government where he will receive in-depth briefings from all ministers, uh, ministries uh, on the pressing issue uh, facing British Columbians ahead of his swearing in as Premier, uh, of course, in the coming weeks. Now, once sworn in, Mr. Eby will be British Columbia's 37th Premier, meaning only 36 other individuals have held that position. Our next guest is one of them. Christy Clark was British Columbia's 35th Premier, serving from 2011 to 2017. She knows the demands of the job and has a unique perspective in what will be required when you move into the Premier's office. Christy, thank you for joining us today. Always great to be back with you, Des. Thank you. Moving into the Premier's office, Mr. Eby is now the NDP leader. Uh, he still has to be sworn in, but you went through that uh, same process. It'll be a little different, but essentially... Your move to the premier's office. What? How daunting was that move? Um, it's uh, daunting. Isn't really how I would describe it. It was just everything was different than I expected. I think first thing is you get in there, and he knows what the premier's office looked like, and he knows how it played out. So did I. But you get in there, and um, you want to meet all the people first, and find out what they do for a living. And some of them don't want to stay. And some of them do, and some of them you don't want to stay, and 
you know, some of them do anyway. So it's going through that process of, okay, what are my priorities? How are we going to organize the workload here? What's the focus going to be? Do we have the people we need to do that? And who do we have to replace? Because they liked the old person in the office, you know, in my case, Gordon Campbell, a lot more than they like me. In regards to that, I mean, uh, I guess picking the right staff and making those changes is so vitally important, isn't it? I mean, whether it's an organization in the private sector or the premier's office, uh, you not only need the right people, but you need somebody with that special political lens. You do, you do. And, you know, I think um, that uh, Premier Horgan will have left him with some good people. And... Um, I think New Democrats are less likely to go back out into the private sector when the premier changes than probably people from uh, the the kind of the more business-oriented parties. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there might be some of them that, like, you know, he's been fighting with a long time, that he just wants to get rid of. You know, it's, there's that kind of stuff. But part of it, I think, the, maybe the most important part is, what is his priority going to be? I mean, he's going to have a set of five things that he really is determined to get done that are going to be his legacies. And does he have the people that he needs that he trusts in the office to help him make sure he can execute on that stuff? Because every premier is going to have a different uh, way of operating. And from what I can tell, David Eby is a guy who stays up birds of midnight oil um, and, you know, really makes, I'm going to guess, pretty strong demands on his staff. And I think, you know, it it may be that some of the folks from the previous premier's office just don't want to, you know, maybe don't want to work quite as hard as David Eby's probably going to try and make them. Uh, in regards to uh, those five things, I once uh, spoke to a cabinet minister, a former cabinet minister, and he told me that he'd have a list of maybe four or five or six things he wanted to get done in his ministry. He would share it with his deputy minister, and he would put it on a sheet of paper in an envelope uh, and keep it on, uh, at his desk. Uh, um, uh, and he would look at it every once in a while. Nobody else would know what that was on that list except him and the deputy minister. But they would always go back to that list. Are we moving this five, these five things that we really want done? The rest of the day, the rest of your tenure may be putting out fires and dealing with process, but are we getting these five things pushed through for what I believe are the important things and for my legacy? Is that similar to what a premier has to do? It is. And what's interesting, though, for David Eby, I think, is that he didn't go through a, a kind of a, an intensive leadership campaign or an intensive election campaign to get there. And so, and I was a little bit half and half. I ran on a leadership campaign of bringing everybody together and, you know, talking about families and, and, you know, more take home pay and those kinds of things. And that what became our guide for the next couple of years. But as you remember, they were messy, right? There were a lot of people in my caucus who did not want me to be the leader. But after the election campaign, we had a full, we had a full platform that we'd developed um, and that we made public, and that really became the guide for everybody. I mean, that was every ministry had its goals, and every you know, and the premier's office had it, our goals, and the civil service was able to organize around that as as were the staff. So for David, I think it's going to be a little bit different than that because he doesn't have this long set of publicly stated goals. And I think you know the story that you've told could be really helpful for him is to sit down and think about what that is, but I I think he should probably share those five or ten goals really widely and with the public, because if he wants to focus an organization as big and as complicated as the government of British Columbia, 
um, everybody in the province needs to know what it is he wants to do and what it is he's trying to do. I think that's the most effective way to make sure that people are really doing what they're supposed to be doing and are going to be able to be held accountable for achieving that. Uh, you talked a little bit about uh, caucus. Speak to me about just managing a caucus of individually elected MLAs who have hopes, aspirations, uh, constituency needs. What's it like managing a caucus? Because he's going to have to now because he has certain friends, others that perhaps didn't support him. Uh, generally, it seems like he's got a good support with his caucus, but you still have to manage people. Speak to me a little bit about managing caucuses that you know have 55 individual MLAs. Yeah, it's hard. And part of it is that everybody believes they should be in cabinet. And almost everybody, I'm sure, has a good reason or something that they could do or, you know, some something that they could add. But they can't all be in it, obviously. He had a lot of people who supported him for leader. And, you know, usually those are the people that will be rewarded with a cabinet post or a parliamentary secretary role. Um uh, but, you know, he's going to have to think about the regions of the province as well. He's going to be thinking about women's representation and, um, you know, for other other um, groups in the province being being well represented. So it's just, you know, it's kind of a, it's putting together a big puzzle because you also, the you know, the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Attorney General, don't just go to anybody. I mean, <laughs> those are two roles where you can't just say, well, you know what, I want to have, a person from the Kootenays doing this job and it has to be a woman and it should be a woman of color. Like it just, you can't, it's too hard a job to just give to anybody, but there are some jobs, you know, that you could, that lots of people could do. So he's got to match the job, the region, the inter equity is there. He's going to want to reward the people that supported him. And he, you know, he may decide that there are some people he'd rather see moving out before the next general election. And, it might be he'll be sitting down with a few of them having a talk and saying, you know what, you're not going to be in cabinet, not uh, not that you haven't done a good job, not that I don't like you, but I need to make some space for some new folks, folks and I prefer you don't run again. Uh, now, Christy, the challenges before uh, Mr. Eby uh, would include housing, crime, and of course health care and transportation. Speak to me a little bit here on the issue of housing and crime specifically uh, because they are the big issue right now. Do you think it's possible for the provincial government to bring in broad provincial legislation that can actually deal with some of these local challenges? I don't think they can do it alone. I mean, they're going to have to do it in concert, in particular with the cities of Vancouver and Surrey, both of whom, both of which have mayors, new mayors. I think that Vancouver is likely to be a hostile environment for uh, Premier Eby. Um, just because they're ideologically so different. I think that in Surrey, there'll be a lot of more, lot more space to get along because Brenda Locke's just probably a less, you know, committed conservative than I think the Vancouver group is. I think so. I, I, but there has to be cooperation between the two because, you know, the thing is, is that the city, cities build housing, cities zone housing. Cities are the ones that decide what goes where and what's going to be in it. The province doesn't do that. The province funds the funds the projects and has some say about what they're going to fund. But if the city doesn't feel like building it, it's not going to happen. So he is going to have to forge, you know, and I know he talks a lot about, uh, you know, improving the housing, the housing situation in Vancouver. He's going to have to forge some very strong and deep relationships um, with mayors. And I don't think that's necessarily going to be easy because it's, it just, it never is. And I think on the crime side, again, it's a similar problem 
municipal police forces that are being directed in large part by municipal police boards, it's not that easy to go in and say, well, here's what you have to do. What they can do is they can provide resources to them. Um, we did that with guns and gangs in Surrey when the RCMP said, ah, you know, we don't have the money to do anything about, do anything more about guns and gangs. And the province actually came up with the money to, to, to help them with that. He can do those kinds of things. But um, that is always the challenge of being a premier is you can't just reach in, just like Justin Trudeau can't, you know, uh, fix, change healthcare or education because it's a premier's job. A premier can't just go in and fix housing and crime without, without really strong relationships at that municipal level. I think it's going to be tough. I would say too, though, Jazz, I think the, he's going to be very focused on crime and housing and the things that are really important in the lower mainland. And one of the things I really hope he decides to also pay attention to, which is not necessarily his political world, is to pay attention to what's going on outside Vancouver, because that's where our economy begins. And without the rural parts of this province really um, firing on all cylinders, the Vancouver economy and the Burnaby economy and the Surrey economy will start to sag and ultimately collapse. So there's the political stuff stuff that's going to help you get reelected in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland. But then there's the bigger picture of trying to do the right thing as the premier and think about how you create economic growth and jobs. Well, it's going to be a fascinating uh, ride for him and, and, and for people like me to watch from afar and you as well. Thank you so much for your time today, Chris. Really appreciate it. Yeah, always great to talk to you, Jess. Thanks for having me. Vancouver Canucks hockey finally returns to Rogers Arena on Saturday night. After five road games to start the season, the Canucks will play their home opener against the Buffalo Sabres uh, tomorrow, making Vancouver the second last team in the NHL to play in front of their home fans this season. The Canucks have a number of um, special activities uh, planned for the evening, beginning a a pregame party on the plaza outside Rogers Arena. Um, Of course, there'll be an outdoor beer garden as well with games and prizes, which I think is is new, and happy hour until 6 p.m. They'll also have local bands playing uh, on the plaza while Canucks alumni will be uh, on hand to sign autographs. Of course, that sounds wonderful. It is wonderful, but it doesn't take away from the fact the team has lost all five of its games to start the season. That's despite holding a third-period lead uh, five in all five games. So what's going on? Is it just a slow start, or is this something deeper that we need to be worried about? Joining me, joining me now to talk about the Canucks season so far is Ryan Lee Hall, our technical producer, and of course our show contributor, John Jang. Ryan and John John, welcome. Thanks, Jazz. Hello. So let me start with you, John. Uh, what is going on in your mind? What is this something <laughs> we all need to be worried about? Because I haven't seen so many negative comments in a long time on Twitter the last little while. What 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 is going on in your mind? Well, first and foremost, I hate to burst the bubble, but if anyone thought the Vancouver Canucks were going to win the Stanley Cup this year, it's not happening. And if you kind of went into this season expecting the Vancouver Canucks to be an interesting team, that might be somewhat competitive but probably not a lock to make the playoffs then what you're seeing in the first five games really shouldn't surprise you what we're seeing is a team that clearly has issues on that defense it just doesn't have enough talent on the blue line for them to sit comfortably back even if they have some good leads going into the third period they're not a team that is able to just coast by they need to give a full 60 minute performance and so far through these first five jazz that hasn't been anywhere close to what the product has actually been out there ryan have you been watching the games uh you know what honestly no 
No? No, not a lot. Not a lot. This start doesn't necessarily surprise me. I mean, being a Canucks fan your whole life, it kind of prepares you for moments <laughs> like this. I mean, we came into the segment here with the Rolling Stones. Start me up. Has the Canucks season actually started? No. <laughs> Have they started? <laughs> not, based, not based on this. So It's already it, over. It's, <laughs> it, no, okay, well, maybe that is the, right, the next question. Uh, let me go to you, to you Ron, on, uh, John, on this. Sorry. Uh, is it over? I mean, uh, we get negative very quickly. Um, uh, is it over? I mean, it, it seems like, look, there's lots of time still, or are people already seeing what the season's going to look like now? Well, no, I, I'm just mostly saying that tongue-in-cheek. However, like, what, what's the excuse? All of their best players are playing. They don't have a major injury right now to speak of where you can say, oh, uh, we're going to win games now because X, Y, and Z are going to come back in a few weeks. No, Elias Pettersson is playing lights out. He's leading the team in scoring. JT Miller gets a big contract in the offseason. He's... You know, he's putting up some points, but he's not doing great defensively. Bo Horvat is there. Brock Besser is back from his injury from the preseason. Mm-hmm. Thatcher Demko, Quinn Hughes. Like, the star players are here, Jazz. There's no reinforcements waiting in the wings. This is it. And if they can't find that extra gear to, to kick up their, I don't know, their desperation or their commitment to playing better defense, if they can't figure it out, this season will be over by the time we get to the new year. Uh, Ryan, uh, I think the... Uh... The total salary for the team is about $80 million or something like that. So what in your mind is missing? If, if John is saying that, look, we've got uh, great players, uh, it may, it's pr- perhaps it's the, uh, the character players that we need more of, I don't know. What do you think? If you were a manager for a day or a coach for a day, what would you change? Uh, defense. Their, their defense is just horrific. Jazz. I mean, defense was their problem over the last few seasons, and they haven't necessarily really changed anyone over on the back end. They keep bringing back the same sort of guys, and yet they wonder, why aren't we winning? Yeah, Why aren't we winning games? Maybe it has something to do with you bringing back the exact same team. I mean, you did sort of rattle off there, you know, they're going to have a beer garden at this game and all these things, but are they going to win? <laughs> are they going to win? If you are a fan right now, what's the draw to watch this team? Why mm-hmm. should you sort of, again, 0-5, they've blown a lead in each of those five games. Some of them were two-goal leads. You could almost say that they blew it, Jazz. You blew it! <laughs> exactly. John, I, I remember uh, I was actually working um, uh, here, actually, as a producer at CKW in the early 90s. So you, you think about um, that great run uh, with Pavel Bure. I mm-hmm. mean, they had a, the Canucks had a good 25-year 20, run in the sense of sold-out seats, all of that. Um, is this just a question of a different era now where we're going to have to uh, sit through some bad teams and mediocre teams to hopefully one day get back to that era again where we're, we're competing? I, I hope it doesn't take so long, um, but certainly this is not a finished product. You look at the Vancouver Canucks team from 2011, they were the best team in hockey, Jazz. They had yeah. the number one scoring offense. They had an elite defense that could shut down opponents' uh, top players each and every night. They had one of the world's best goaltenders in Roberto Luongo. So they had everything you could possibly want. This team doesn't have anything close to that just yet. They've got potential. Like I mentioned, they have young players that have a lot of upside. But until we see that they are going to be the best players in the game, Mm-hmm. I just don't know if Canucks fans should have too many reasons to get overly enthusiastic. I would, if I, like, honestly, if I was trying to 
buy tickets for my family of four to go and watch a hockey game. I'd be more interested in buying tickets for the Abbotsford Canucks than the Vancouver Canucks right now because at least oh with Abbotsford, God. it's a cheaper product and yeah. they're younger, hungrier players wanting to prove themselves there. Last year, were they selling out still the Canucks? Are there, were there tickets available generally? I think in the beginning half of the year, it was a tough sell. The yeah. team, again, was struggling. And then they made the coaching change. Bruce Boudreau comes in and everything changed. So I think by the end of the year, as there was a small possibility of them becoming a playoff team, yeah. I think there was a lot more attention and excitement. But clearly, in the first five games of this year, Jazz, all of that excitement has kind of burst. And there are talks now that the team has a fragile mental uh, sort of like m- mental stability within that room in, in the case that they've given up so many games that they probably should be winning now the coach is kind of scared to even crack the whip he's you know just this morning he was talking about how they need to rally together the answers are all in the room trying to really bring the whole locker room together but that's just kind of the state of the team right now when your coach is treating you with like baby kid gloves uh, you know something's gone awry yeah well let's hope uh, things turn around on saturday when they play the the buffalo sabers ryan john thank you you got it. Thanks, Jeff. No All right. That's Ryan the Hall, our technical producer, and John Jang, our show contributor. We're all sports fans here. Uh, so we were talking about that uh, yesterday and today as to how bad they've been playing. So it was time to have a discussion. Hopefully they do turn things around. Well, Metro Vancouver is the home to of many different great expos and convention, uh, conventions. Think of the Home and Garden Show or the uh, famous Boat Show and countless others. Well, tomorrow a brand new expo will be taking place in Surrey that is designed to bridge a very important gap in the business community. Our show contributor, John Jang, has more. We all know why supporting local business matters, but do we do enough to support businesses owned by members of the BIPOC community? What does it mean to support local if the businesses that we support don't honestly reflect the diverse background of our communities? Luckily, there is an organization that's hoping to bridge the gap. The first ever Metro Vancouver Black Business Expo is taking place tomorrow. And to tell us more about that and how you can get involved is Adibola Ige, Community Empowerment Chair for the Metro Vancouver Black Business Expo, as well as Adiola Awopetu, the Black Business Expo Coordinator. Gentlemen, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. Uh, thank you, John, for having us. Yeah, I want to say thank you so much for having us today. It's exciting to be part of the show. Thank you. I'll start with you, Adiola. Uh, tell us more about the Black Business Expo and how it's going to help to support Black entrepreneurs and business owners. Okay. Uh, thanks for thanks, John, for the uh, question. That's a, an amazing question. Uh, so the the Metro Vancouver Black Business Expo is. Uh, inaugural you know uh expo here on the uh on metro vancouver it's first of its kind and the expo has been you know put together to address uh, some of the issues that are faced by you know black entrepreneurs we we feel and we believe strongly strongly that uh, uh black businesses have not really have uh a level playing field mm. to be able to to showcase their business. Uh, they've not uh, they, they've not had access to, and they, they still don't have access to some of the resources that you know other uh, similar cultures have, and and that's why we are putting this uh, expo together to provide opportunity for black businesses in and around uh, Metro Vancouver to be able to come together to showcase uh, their products and services, to be able to network and to have access to some information that will help them 
uh, to grow their businesses. Adiola, when you say that it's maybe not a, a level playing field, does that mean like not receiving the same sort of financial opportunities, benefits, grants, loans, things of that nature? Yes, that, that's correct. You, 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 you nailed it. Yeah, I think I can immediately see the problem in, in having that because if you're not receiving that kind of support, it already puts you behind the eight ball. And as we know, starting any small business is such a difficult endeavor for so many people. Uh, Adibola, I'll go over to you. Um, maybe this was answered a little bit by what Adiola was saying, but does Metro Vancouver do enough to support black businesses? Because we talk so much about supporting local, but I rarely hear people talking about supporting black or even any specific culture for that matter. Oh, yeah, thank you so much. And that's a very uh, wonderful question. And I do have also observed that there are lots of efforts in the community to support uh, Black-owned uh, businesses. But uh, And that calls into question the, the difference between uh, diversity and inclusion. And that's a situation whereby it can always be better. Uh, there are various aspects that are still you know, lacking behind compared to other businesses, especially even other similar minority businesses, uh, if I want to be specific. Uh, so in this kind of case and in this kind of regard, it's very good to pay adequate attention uh, to these uh, uh, categories of, of individuals or businesses that have over time been consistently a bit behind in terms of integration with the community. And this goes even into financing, marketing opportunity. This goes into expansion. Uh, this goes into feasibility. A whole lot of, uh, of, of issues and and limitations surrounding black-owned businesses. So it could always be definitely better than what we have today. I love what you said, diversity versus inclusion. I think there are differences. We talk about both words as being positive, progressive words, but how we treat and respond to each word makes a huge difference. Uh, I look at both of you gentlemen, and I know I realize we're doing a radio interview, but I can see both of you in this video chat. You're both young, and I think that's important as well because representation is so important because the future generation of entrepreneurs, black business leaders who might still be in high school or in college or in university right now, but they have dreams as well. They need to know that they have a place where they truly belong in a place like Metro Vancouver. That's very correct. Yeah. When you look at what we are doing, it's like creating a pathway for the future. Uh, we do have lots of youth, young entrepreneurs who are even coming mm -hmm. to exhibit on October 22nd. Uh, we also want to create an environment whereby those uh, those in high school, you know, teenagers, they can look into the future and be excited that there is a level playing ground, uh, you know, for them when they become entrepreneurs. Uh, we're in conversation with Adiola Awopetu. He's the coordinator with the Black Business Expo, as well as Adibola Ige, the community empowerment chair for the Metro Vancouver Black Business Expo. Adiola, I'll come back to you. As the coordinator, uh, what was the reaction like from black business owners who heard, you want to put this together? It's the first expo of its kind. I'm sure there was a lot of excitement, but also a lot of planning and coordinating to get something like this off the ground. Uh, yes, uh, I tell you, uh, all the black businesses uh, that are part of this are so excited. Uh, they are fired up. Uh, we had uh, exhibitors uh, briefing uh, two days ago, and everyone on that uh, call at that meeting, they were excited. They were looking forward to it. A few minutes ago before starting this uh, show, I, I, I got a call from someone one of the exhibitors that is super excited you know they're just looking forward to it i tell you yeah and again i think that speaks volumes about uh the fact that this has never happened before and 
the first of its kind is going to set precedent moving forward for the future. Uh, at Ebola, I'll come back to you now, sir. Uh, tell us more about like where and when the expo is happening so that our listeners today can mark it down on their calendars and make sure they go out and visit and support. Oh, thank you so much. The expo is happening uh, tomorrow, uh, Saturday, October 22nd, 2022. And this is going to start from 10 a.m., uh, Pacific time to 5 p.m. Pacific time. And the venue is at the gymnasium of the St. Uh, Matthew Parish, and that's 16079. It's its avenue in Surrey, uh, British Columbia, uh, Canada. So we look forward to seeing uh, all the community participants. It's free uh, uh, admission into the event, so we look forward to seeing everyone. And we also do have complimentary uh, breakfast uh, at this event. So thank you. Gentlemen, again, thank you so much for giving me some time here. I think what you're doing is tremendously important and exciting, uh, not just for the business owners who are part of it moving forward, but also for the public to learn again how they can do more to help out and uh, be a part of a growing community here in Metro Vancouver. Adibola, thank you. Adiola, thank you so much for giving me some time here today. Yeah, thank you for having us, John. Yes, thank you so much for having us, John. It's exciting to be talking to you about this program. So thank you so much. You know, John, as I was listening to that report, you sometimes forget, you know, we have such a, a diverse population uh, here mm-hmm. in Metro Vancouver, but our minority communities have been here a long time, but we forget there are many newcomers who are just starting to build that economic base uh, for their communities. You think of the Chinese community, you think of the South Asian, uh, Korean community, the Filipino communities, they've been here a long time and they're just, they've been growing in size and building that sort of network of, of uh, business leaders, of mentors. And as you were talking to Adibola, Adiola, um, you actually get a sense that, uh, you know, this is where these communities all begin and these types of expos and, and networking opportunities that are there. Yeah, especially, I think, for the young business leaders of tomorrow. I, I think it's going to be huge for them. In fact, I was having uh, an off-the-air sort of conversation there with uh, Adiola and talking about how this is an important event for the future generation because there's so many things, so many business strategies, business practices, business opportunities and avenues to go down. It's really difficult when you're trying to start up and trying to figure out how you're going to succeed. So for them, it's an opportunity to come in, make some connections, but more importantly, see who can mentor you, see who can coach you, see who can guide you uh, into the pathway to success. Yeah, I I, uh, I, I just assume there probably was a, a um, an event like this already, but to, to think this is the first one, uh, yeah. it is, uh, it's great to see. I mean, it must have taken a while for these guys to just organize it all and just put this together. That takes so much time. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what I emphasized there in the conversation a little bit yeah. because I can't wrap my head around like uh, organizing a birthday party for a friend, Jazz. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that takes a lot of time in itself. But to put on an event like this, the first of its kind, try to, you know, of course, get all these different business owners and leaders into it, getting them excited, seeing what the benefits are and, and how it can positively impact their business. But then also spreading the word. Uh, I think it's it's probably quite challenging to do so when you're up against other more established expos, conventions and etc. Uh, so I hope people do take this one to heart. It's again happening tomorrow in Surrey from 10 to 5 at St. Matthew's Parish on 80th Avenue. John, thank you so much. You got it. Thanks, Jazz. Welcome back to the Jazz Joe Hall Show. A lot's going on this week in popular culture. We've had another week of opinions, experts, open line wisdom, and hot takes. It's that time to bring together our dynamic duo to help explain the week that was. It's time for The Wrap. 
Goodbye now is over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's This week, we look at which artist album drop would you take a day off for, and what's the worst job you've ever had? Joining us today is our regular rap panel. We're joined by Leah Halive. She's a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels, a real estate agent in South Surrey. She is an author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. Bonjourno. Bonjourno, indeed. Well, prior to our rap uh, segment, I was speaking to Talia Miller. She's a producer here at CKNW. She's usually working on Friday. She took the day off uh, because of a, a very important uh, moment for the year in the year for her. It wasn't that she had to get errands done or a vacation. Taylor Swift's new album dropped at midnight. Uh, late last night, of course, uh, and uh, Talia is a Swifty, of course. Uh, all Taylor Swift fans are known as Swifties, and uh, she got home and uh, listened to the music at midnight. Take a listen to what uh, Talia had to say earlier today. The moment uh, my shift was done, I went home, grabbed my wine, grabbed my snacks, and sat down with my headphones and listened to the entire thing in full. <laughs> there you go. And, uh, and she explains why she took the day off. Here, take a listen. So I'm just being a good employee in my mind using those days off. The moment she was like, oh, my album's coming out October 21st, I knew I just needed the day off to emotionally process the album. It's probably going to be on repeat for the whole weekend for me. <laughs> there you go. So Talia was at home midnight, glass of wine, oh to, lis- listening to a Taylor <laughs> Swift, oh and I'm sure God. some of those songs were inspired by dating a celebrity and breaking up with him, <laughs> I'm sure, which led to some of those songs. So let me go to you, Leah, first and foremost. Uh, what artist album drop would you take time off for? You know, I mean, good on you, Talia, but uh, I can't even think of anybody that I would take a day off to listen to their music all Bingo. night. I just, right? I just, just nobody, nobody. I would rather go do something else than sit up and listen to their music. Like, I have better things to do myself. Like, not that she doesn't, sorry, but I just, you know, I, to me, I'd rather go, you know, go for dinner or go do something. I don't know, go do something that I have to get done that I haven't been able to get done. There's no artist for me that I'm going to book off a day of work and plan that ahead of time. What if it was, <laughs> what, if, what if it was a younger Aaliyah, let's say a, a 21 year old Leah? You know what? Okay, so even a 21-year-old Leah wouldn't do that. A 21-year-old Leah would take the day off to go shopping or something. Like, that's what she's doing. She's or not she was going hung to over wait. and wouldn't be bothering. Yeah. Right. 100%. You got it, Sarah. <laughs> exactly. Right. There's nobody. Nobody. No. Sarah, how about yourself? Uh, would there be any artist? Uh, not... Different- no, <laughs> not not Kanye West. I can promise you that. Um, you know what? It's funny. I was it's like much likely. I was thinking about this all day. And and years ago, I used to work for one of our sister stations, Rock One Hundred and One. And so I always had to go to concerts because I was in promotions department, but I also did on air stuff. Mm-hmm. And I would have to MC concerts, which would mean staying like getting there at like eight o'clock, you know, to the Commodore mm-hmm. or whatever place was holding the concert. And having to wait through the opening act, the whole nine yards. So I was constantly around that. And I know that people probably thought, oh, that's so cool. You get to go to all these concerts and meet all these bands. No, it's not. It's really boring. No. You get around, but it's just not You exciting. can't drink. And yeah. it's, it's, it's just, I mean, if I'm still awake at midnight, it's because I've decided I'm going to wait, stay awake that extra five minutes and wait for the new Wordle to drop. That's me. 
<laughs> the only world reason. to draw. <laughs> I'm, that's the only reason I'm not the midnight. Not to listen to people. And this is nothing against Taylor Swift, but I'm just old no. and bitter. I can't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Nobody. I don't know. Like I just think I can't you not think of anybody. The next day? Right? Yeah. I can't think of anybody. No, I think we're I was just getting older. Like, I was thinking like maybe back in the day, maybe I would have been like you know interested to hear like new Rolling Stones or U two. But Rolling Stones now, like you know, well half of them. I mean, God forbid, are dead. I mean, they're like 150 <laughs> now. I mean, I'm not waiting for any of that to stop. I mean, they're false. They drop at drop 6 p.m. Let's music be does, right? You know. Yikes. <laughs> That's but, right. There's, yeah, I, I, I no. No, I, I'm with you. I, I can't think of anybody, and, and maybe when I was 21, but I still can't think of anybody. So no, you know I, what? E, Nothing but respect. Even my for... favorite artist, like even all my, I, there's nobody. There's, I just why? You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? Like you can listen to them tomorrow. Well, it will, it will okay. still be there when I wake up. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. But you know, Talia and those Swifties, they are dedicated. So I, they have my oh. full respect. Well, coming up next, uh, Liz Truss <laughs> has become the shortest-lived prime minister in British history after announcing her departure uh, from number. 10 holding office for wait for it just 45 days it's the lettuce got... one the lettuce one <laughs> the lettuce the one. one coming yeah. up next we talk about the worst jobs we've ever had that's next on the jazz joe hall show welcome back to the jazz joe hall show uh, as you heard this week liz truss uh became the shortest-lived prime minister in British history after announcing her departure from uh, number 10 Downing Street after only 45 days. It was a mere six weeks in office. Here's uh, Comedy Central's uh, Trevor Noah describing uh, that resignation. A British newspaper began tracking a head of lettuce to see if the embattled trust would last longer than the produce, and it did. Imagine being so bad at your job that you lose a joke contest. <laughs> Yeah, because at first people were like, ha ha, I bet she can't last longer than a head of lettuce. And then by the end of it, they were like, should the lettuce be prime minister? <laughs> should the lettuce be prime minister? Sarah, let me go to you first and foremost. I don't know if she enjoyed those 45 days. Judging by what, what you, uh, we were reading, uh, you know, she, she, her fiscal plan crashed her market. It caused a run on the pound. Uh, there was a loss of confidence uh, by uh, virtually all of her MPs, her own... Her own uh, um, all started with Brexit. All it all started, started with Brexit. Exactly. There was rumors <laughs> of violent bullying in Parliament as well. Like, it was just a horrendous 45 days. It got us uh, thinking here at the office... What some of the worst jobs that we've had. Can let me start with you. What what is the worst job you've ever had? <laughs> well, it there would be one particular babysitting job, and also, but I mean, job job would be. Um, I worked for a secure a small securities company in my early twenties, and the the boss of that small securities company, who had sort of like you know asked me to come over from the security company that I'd been working at, and when I say securities, I mean investment company, mm-hmm. investment firm, um, and he was a giant. Blankety blank blank blank, and um, for, for you know you can imagine. Yeah. He he stressed me out so badly that when Friday afternoon came, I would get upset because in you know two days I'd have to go back to work on Monday. Oh. That wow. was how like he like it, it stressed me out so badly. But on like just general like one like one job, I would probably I mean I think everybody that's ever babysat can confirm that like one experience in babysitting. I had one when I was about 14, 15, and the parents um, were supposed to be back by about 9.30, 10. It was a weeknight, school night. And they had a one-year-old, a four-year-old, and a seven-year-old. Oh. And, I mean, it was like like left alone with a pack of wolves. (gasps) 
and the parents <laughs> didn't come home till one, and they were, oh. you know, a little bit under the weather. Oh, and geez. I think they paid me for the entire night. They paid me five dollars. This gives you an oh. indication of how long ago it was, right? We should have labor I, laws I, for that. I mean, my actually, my father <laughs> went and spoke to them. Wow. Because it was, wow. you came back three hours later and you paid her $5, you're insane. Yeah, So exactly. That, and, and so it was basically, my dad did that so they would never call me again. Too. But, <laughs> wow. Yeah, babysitting is usually a, a horrendous nightmare for anybody that's done it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what yeah. about you? Well, I, I have kind of a funny story. I think I was about maybe 13 uh-huh. or 14. And my mom's like, I want you to learn how to make pierogies and maybe make some money <laughs> while you're doing it. And so she took me to like this factory. Okay. So I was there. She dropped me off. What? I called her two hours later and I was out. I was like, come pick me up. I'm done. Child labor? What's going on? What can you she take a child to a factory? You know, she just wanted me to learn. I probably was about 14, I think. And and she just wanted me to learn and maybe make a couple bucks. But I couldn't even last the day, like, which was probably five hours. And I was out in a pierogi factory. Yes. Yes. It was just like pinching pierogies. Because, you know, I'm Russian, Ukrainian. <laughs> you, just, was, you were pinching pierogies at a factory yes. and, you just, and you said, that's enough of that? <laughs> that's it. I said, two hours, I'm out. What the hell did you bring me here for is what I told her. I was really that's, mad at her. I, I think days. that violates child labor laws. We need to have a co- talk with your mother. Like, what, did, did she know somebody no, she, there? Obviously, she knows somebody there that, that could. Well, she just, I, yeah, I don't even know how it all came about. I think she just wanted me to, because I was like a spoiled child. So I think she just wanted me to like learn like what work was. And how she makes pierogies, right? So I was like, well, this sucks. I'm out. I'm not doing this again, never again. So that was it. I never worked, like, in my whole high school year. So I can't, can't be too hard what? on her. She didn't make me Look know. at you. Look at you, Miss <laughs> oh, Fancy no. Pants. Holy school, cow. Well, school was important. So yes. my, my parents were like, school's number one. We don't want you up. Because my friends were up till, like, midnight. And then they had school in the morning. And, like, my parents were like, no way. We want you to focus on school. So. <laughs> but they no did but they did drop you off at the pierogi factory just to give you I worked in high school because my parents were like, we're paying for private school, so you're going to pay for your own spending money. So that well, was pretty go. much how that worked. Well, there you go. <laughs> Sarah, Leah, thank you so much. Thank you for thank having you. me. Happy weekend. Happy weekend. For listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast, don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. <laughs>